The Bible, as you know, is a uh, remarkable book. It can be a very difficult book when you first start reading it, as uh, through the Bible in the year people can probably testify to. But uh, after all, it comes from places and from cultures uh, that are quite different from our own, and there's just gaps there and barriers that have to be crossed linguistically and culturally and uh, over time. But once you learn your way around the Bible a little bit, its remarkable features start to emerge. And one of its most amazing qualities is the continuity of the Bible. Now, continuity has to do with, uh, it's kind of a big word, but it, you, you can kind of see words in it like continuous and things. And my, my big dictionary at home, one of the definitions it gives is that it means a connected or unbroken course a connected or unbroken course or series. And the word is used in, in movie-making circles all the time because movies are made in thousands of little teeny pieces, you know, and you have to put them together. And if you make continuity mistakes, then somebody goes, well, wait, wait a minute, that person was holding that a minute ago, and, the, you know, and then they're not holding it, and then they're holding it again because the editor put things together wrong, things like that. So they have people that are continuity people, their purpose is to make sure it all flows. And you want the story to have continuity, that is, you can follow a narrative from beginning to end. You have to start somewhere and you end somewhere, and everything in between connects the beginning and the end in a meaningful and logical and coherent sort of way. That's continuity. Well, the Bible has a continuity that's so amazing that no other book on earth is like it. It's completely and utterly unique. It's so unique, in fact, that you could actually offer this one fact, although there's a lot of other things you could offer as well, but this one aspect of the continuity of the Bible as evidence, pretty strong evidence, of its divine origin. The Bible has a beginning, and it has an end, and that wonderfully complete beginning and end, there's a perfect completion to it. I mean, if you read Genesis and you read Revelation, they cohere perfectly. But not just that. Everything in between is taking you along this narrative trail to that end. And you can trace from beginning to end the theme of the Bible, in fact, a number of themes, that bring you to a very satisfying conclusion. We say, well, lots of books do that. What's so special about that? Yeah, but this book took 1,500 years to write. And that's what makes it so unique. One guy can sit down and write a book that has a coherent theme from beginning to end. But when somebody starts the book and then the person that ends it lives 1,500 years later, and all these people are writing in between, and it all coheres and tells one story, that's kind of amazing. There isn't any other book like it in the whole world. 1,500 years. 40 different authors, at least, most of whom did not know each other at all. Written in different lands, on different continents, in different languages. Three different continents, three different languages by men from every conceivable walk of life. And it contains this huge variety of literary forms. Some of them are invented for the Bible, like Gospels. There's no historical narrative like the Gospels anywhere until the Gospels invented that kind of literature. But you have histories, you have treaties, you have poetry, you have songs, you have prophecies, you have letters, you have apocalyptic visions, you have all these different kinds of things. And yet... It tells this one story from the beginning all the way through the middle to the end. The story of God's redeeming love for wicked and rebellious humanity. A story of promises that are made right at the beginning that carry you all the way through, even to an end, even an end that is still yet to happen. So I could go on a long time about this, but let me focus on one central figure this morning near the beginning of our book, 
And that central figure is a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham is the subject of Romans chapter 4. Abraham lived 2,000 years before the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. So it wasn't like exactly a contemporary sort of guy to Paul. Why give him so much space? Why devote a whole chapter of the greatest theological work of the New Testament to a man that lived 2,000 years before? A man that lived even hundreds of years before the law of the Old Testament? Well, there's one word answer to that question. Continuity. It all ties together wonderfully, amazingly. It has been said, and I think accurately, that every major theological idea in the Bible you can find in the book of Genesis. Some people have a hard time in Genesis because there's lots of strange things going on and people are doing strange things. And some people wonder why we don't have more information about the ancient world or prehistory or Adam and Eve's life, what kind of house did they build or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. In reality, we have a lot of fascinating history in Genesis about the earliest times, but history that actually stands up well to modern scrutiny. But Genesis wasn't written to please our curiosity about what Adam and Eve did for fun or whether they played baseball or not. I mean, those aren't the questions that the Bible's answering. On the simplest level, Moses wrote Genesis to give the Israelites an authoritative narrative history of their beginnings as a people. But more importantly than that, it's a history of God's relationship with humankind. So you learn a lot about God in the book of Genesis, and that's the purpose, what God is about, not what Adam and Eve did or what Noah did before the flood and all that kind of stuff. What matters most in terms of our subject today is that Genesis introduces us to the idea of covenants. And covenants are a major aspect of the Bible. In fact, one of the best ways you can really get a hold of the Bible is to trace it in terms of its covenants. If you follow the covenants of the Bible, you've got really good handles on where everything's going on from this story that starts from the beginning and goes all the way to the end and has this perfect continuity. It really helps. Now, a covenant is a, a legally binding obligation, as men use the word, but covenants that we're talking about are divine covenants instituted by God involving God's relationship to men. For example, the Bible begins with our first parents living in a garden paradise, and there was a rule, one rule, to acknowledge a rule, one limitation to for them to be able to acknowledge their devotion and service to God by keeping that one rule. And that's often called the Edenic Covenant, Eden, Edenic. By Genesis chapter 3, we find man already falling into sin. He is cursed. He's expelled from the garden, from paradise. But God gives them a, a covering for their shame, if you remember, the beginning of sacrifice, and a promise. Genesis chapter 3, you have the promise that someday a descendant of theirs would come and have victory over Satan. And that promise is the thread that you can follow all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end. One of the threads you can trace from Genesis on is the search for that victor over Satan. That's why so much space is devoted to genealogies in the Old Testament because we're looking for this person. When's that person going to come? And, and these genealogies come start narrowing down this person. Well, it's going to come through this guy Abraham, and it's going to come through his son Isaac, and through Jacob. And then one of Jacob's sons 
And right at the end of Genesis, it says that the scepter shall not depart from his feet. They don't even have kings yet, but it's already said he's going to be a king. He's going to come from this one group, and that's that tribe, the tribe of Judah. I mean, we follow that down, and we get down later to the covenant with David. Special promises made about him, and then we start talking about a Messiah, this anointed king, this one, and follow that right on through. And then in Jeremiah, they talk about the new covenant and how the Messiah is going to bring a, a new reality into the world. And by the New Testament, you have what? The, that's what it's called, New Testament. That's what it means, new covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we have all of that together. Well, in Genesis 9, you have the Noahic Covenant. God promises to all mankind after he showed just how real and how devastating his wrath can be. But it's the Abrahamic Covenant that carries us forward from Genesis on. Because the Abrahamic Covenant is the foundation of all the great covenants that follow it. It really is. The promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then reaffirmed over and over again in the next chapters. Those are the promises that ultimately lead to the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Because God said, through your seed, through some descendant, the same thing promised to Adam and Eve, but in a lot more detail, through him, all the people of the earth will be blessed. It's going to be a global, universal blessing through you. And so we're following that line looking for that person. Now Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees somewhere in Iraq to be the father of a new nation and it's God's covenant with Abraham that is unfolding in these new and wonderful ways throughout the Bible. He is so important that the opening words of the New Testament introducing the lineage of Jesus Christ are Matthew 1.1 Does anybody know that? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right in the first verse you see Abraham's name. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Two names, two covenants related to each other, the two most honored men in Jewish history and in the faith of Israel. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the two names Paul turns to in Romans chapter 4. Let's look at Romans 4. Paul has concluded um, chapter 3 with this ringing reassertion of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, a sinful individual can become right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, and here's the important phrase, apart from works. Verse 28 of chapter 3, it says, We maintain that as a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now this was shocking stuff to his fellow Jews in the first century. Well, actually, it's shocking to religious people of all stripes everywhere because it's so anti what everybody thinks is the real situation. Everybody thinks, well, if I'm good enough, God will reward me with eternal life. And Paul says, that does not work. Why doesn't it work? Well, read chapter 3 if you weren't here. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, profoundly sinned. It is offensive to say and to believe that you will earn your way into God's favor. And Paul says that justification by faith, verse 27, excludes self-will and boasting. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith. Salvation by grace through faith, justification by faith alone, excludes boasting. There's no room for you to pat yourself on the back or glory in your own goodness. So salvation is the work of God, not man. 
It is a gift of His grace, verse 24 of chapter 3 says, and comes by the redemption Jesus Christ provides as the sacrifice, as the propitiation, as the Passover lamb. But this is unacceptable to proud minds. And really, since chapter 2, verse 17, Paul has really had his fellow Jews in mind because he was one of those proud minds. He knows exactly how they think. And he so desperately wants them to find Christ as he has. And he knows how hard it is to let go of old thinking. Paul had to let go of all of his religious vanity, his self-righteousness, his confidence in the flesh, as he puts it in Philippians chapter 3. And so he asserts this great doctrine, this life-changing, humbling truth, this great reality that God saves men, Jew and Gentile, by grace, by just his free, unmerited favor, received through faith, period. Now this doctrine... It's so different, seemingly, so radical compared to all that the rabbis taught that a logical question from a Jew might be with regard to several issues. One would be the law, and another one would be Father Abraham, the righteous. Now, Paul answered the question about the law in chapter 3, verse 31, the very end of chapter 3. He says, do we nullify the law? Does teaching and believing the truth that man is right with God by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, does that destroy the law? Does that put the law down in some way? Does it rid us of law? And he says, no! May it never be. He says, on the contrary, we establish the law. You know, the reality is, the law keeper, the person trying to live by obedience to the law and thinks that they're going to merit their salvation through law keeping, that's the person that pulls the law down. How do they do that? Well, if you can't keep it, what do you do? You change it. You dumb it down. You make it easier on yourself. Oh, well, it doesn't mean that. It just means this. And, and you might even do that by adding tons of little rules. That's what the Pharisees did. They made so many little rules that aren't in the Bible at all that they felt like if they kept the little rules, that meant they were really keeping the big ones. And Jesus over and over again kept saying to them, No, no. You're so into the traditions of men, he says, that you've forsaken utterly the meaning of the law. And he kept trying to elevate the law, putting it back in its place. Well, Paul is saying, we who believe in grace are not anti-law. We establish the law. We're saying the law is so important that it condemns us all. And that our only hope is God condemning his beloved son, the Messiah, to a brutal and gruesome end in fulfillment of the law. Jesus dying establishes the law because it shows how earnestly God savors the law and loves the law and will see the law fulfilled to its end. If God didn't care, if the law was not a big deal, Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? So the cross gives full honor to the glory and value of the law. But what can really clinch the argument for Paul talking with his fellow Jews probably the most persuasive point Paul can make is to show that justification by faith is not new. It's been God's way all along. And just because they've been taught one thing by religious teachers their whole lives, that doesn't mean that that's what God was saying all along. So again, we go back to the Word of God, not what men say. And that's especially so if it can be seen in the life of the great patriarch Abraham. And that's what chapter 4 is really all about. And you know what? Of all the individuals in the Old Testament and all the stories in the Old Testament and all the characters in the Old Testament, 
the doctrine of justification by faith is seen most clearly in the life of, guess who? Abraham, the founder of the nation. Now, is that a coincidence? Or is that continuity? I think, rather, it is divine continuity. Paul begins chapter 4 with a question. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What can we learn from Abraham's life? What did he find? Well, he received from God a series of unconditional promises, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And he personally received a righteous standing before God. God viewed him as righteous. He was seen as a righteous man. The big question is, and it's a huge question, how did he get that righteousness? How did Abraham stand before God as a righteous man? Is it because he was so good? Or did he receive a righteousness that was outside of himself? That's a really important theological question. Critical. If Abraham was righteous because of his own virtue, and if God simply approved his good deeds and rewarded him with eternal life, then the whole foundation of New Testament theology just collapses. Then you can take the New Testament and throw it away. Because it's not true. And you can just see all the New Testament doctrine spinning out of the sky like Snoopy after the Red Barons had his way with him, just smoking and falling to the ground. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Paul was just explaining in chapter 3, verse 27, that boasting is excluded by the doctrine of justification by faith. What can you boast about if salvation is God's work and not your work? In fact, if man is wretched and doomed before the bar of divine justice, mercy and grace are his only hope, right? And mercy does not bring honor to the formerly condemned. Who does it honor? The one who is merciful, right? So God is the author of Abraham's salvation. Now in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Let's turn back there for a minute to Genesis chapter 15. You can just stick a pencil in there or something in Romans. We'll be back. The issue before us is whether righteousness comes by good works, meriting God's approval, or by faith, whereby God grants to the sinner a righteousness that is outside of himself. But here's what the ancient text says. Let's look at verse 1, Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, now his name was Abram before God changed it to Abraham, right? Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He's already had this promise of becoming the father of a great nation of many nations. He's already had that promise in chapter 12. But here he is, years and years later, childless. And his wife is really old and he is really older than that. So it's like, from a human perspective, it can't happen. It's, it's too late. God missed it. Isn't that what we always say? You missed it somehow. You were supposed to do this and that and it never happened. So that's kind of where he is. He's thinking like, it's too late. So um, 
you know, I have a servant that I love very much, Eliezer of Damascus, and I'm just thinking of letting him have all my stuff. He'll be my heir, you know. Verse 3, And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, that means look, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir. But one shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside. God led Abraham outside out of his tent or whatever. And said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord. And he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Verse 6 is where the righteousness comes in. How did Father Abraham get it? He believed in the Lord. Now notice that word reckoned. I don't know if all the translations say that, but mine does. Most do. Reckoned. What does that mean? It's a very important word. The only time I ever say reckoned is when I'm doing an impression of somebody from the country and I say something like, reckon that so, Paul. I mean, what does that mean when we say reckon? Because most people don't use that word much anymore. When a person says, I reckon that so, what do they, what do they mean? They mean they've analyzed the facts and they've come to a certain conclusion, right? And, and that starts to give you a hint of where that word comes from. It's a pretty basic word. It's used the same way in English really as it's used in Greek and in Hebrew. It means to like add up the facts and make a determination. It originally meant just to count. And in Romans chapter 4, that word, that's, that Greek word that's translated reckon, is used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. That's how important that word is. Critical. It means to count or compute or to calculate or to surmise or to regard. You could say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see how that works? God is doing the accounting. And because he had faith, God granted him, if you will, righteousness. Abraham believed God, and in essence, God got out his account book, and by Abraham's name, God wrote down righteousness. Now, go back to Romans chapter 4 for a minute. Verse 4 of chapter 4 makes it really clear that if you are earning something, the idea of grace, which he talked about in the previous chapter so much, is eliminated. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. Isn't that just so? If you work and you earn something, then what you get is what you've earned. That's just a true principle. You're simply receiving what you've earned. Verse 5 begins with an adversative. But, but, a contrary fact. But to the one who does not work, and then he just doesn't even, like try to use an analogy, jumps right into the real point. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now wait, don't go too fast through verse 5. Look what he says. There's another key word here. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Justify means to be made right with God, to have righteousness. God see you as righteous. And we're talking about ungodly people being right with God. 
to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's shocking stuff. Paul is saying that Abraham was ungodly. He's saying that Abraham was ungodly, a sinner like the rest of us. Now, you know, years of legends and sermons and rabbinical ruminations had turned Abraham into a perfectly righteous man. They said with zero historical foundation that Abraham had started to serve God by age three and never failed him after that. That's what the rabbi said. The ancient Jewish work, the prayer of Manasseh, said that Abraham didn't even need to repent because he was so perfect. They couldn't imagine their great ancestor, the founder of their people, ever sinning. In the book of Jubilees, which is a second century B.C., before the New Testament, Jewish work, it says, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now, that's what historical scholars call hagiography. Ever heard that term, hagiography? Hagia has to do with holiness. And it's, it's turning people into saints. It's the kind of stories they, they sort of make up about heroes, you know, and great historical figures. And we do that in our own culture. You know, some of the stories about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, never telling a lie. Never told a lie, you know. I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with George Washington as a kid. And he was a great man, but he wasn't sinless and perfect and all of that. People kind of create these tales. And after a while, over generations, they become what people just believe, that there's these perfect, flawless beings. Christian writers did the same thing in the Middle Ages about early saints and so-and-so and whatever. The, these hagiography, these stories, this sainthood, granting sainthood through storytelling is what it is. But anyone who's read the Old Testament knows that Abraham, like the other patriarchs, well, he had a mixed record, right? He could be very generous and very gracious and brave in battle, but so distrustful and fearful that he twice let his wife be taken off into another person's harem because he was too chicken. He asked her to lie just to spare his life from an imaginary danger. It wasn't even a real situation. He was just so fearful. Oh, tell him you're my sister, you know, so they won't hurt me. All right. Then suddenly she's in somebody else's harem. And he's just standing outside the palace or whatever. Twice that happened. So his wonderful faith was not always evident. Sometimes fear pushed Abraham into embarrassingly unmanly behavior. A man is supposed to stand up for his wife, right? So Romans 4, 5 is uh, scandalous to the Jewish mind, but it's true. And I like that because I have my own once or twice mistakes I've made in my life. Ungodliness. You know, I'd love to see somebody write hagiography about me someday. That would be really great. The story of St. Wayne. That doesn't sing, does it? It doesn't quite sound right. But what imagination that I need, right? To make up all these righteous stories about me and how, go how godly I was. And then I have to write it long after everybody that knows me is dead. And everything that anybody's ever written me in a letter has been destroyed or rotted away. Ungodly. That's the, that's the same word Paul used in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. It's that awful corruption that puts God in a box labeled open only when needed. That's what ungodliness is. That tendency to give him much less than he is due. 
To the ungodly, to be ungodly is to disregard God, to diminish Him or to treat Him lightly. And aren't we all guilty of ungodliness in that sense? So you take out your righteousness account. You get your statement in the mail from heaven. And it says, deficient! (laughs) Deficient! And you grieve, my account is deficient! And I look at my bank book of character and unrighteousness and ungodliness are stamped there in big red letters. And I'm in arrears and and I have no resources to make it up. I'm stuck. Start going through all my old pants pockets hoping there's some righteousness money in there I can put in my account and there's none. There's just nothing there. In fact, I found some other sins I forgot about. And uh, I'm in just all kinds of trouble. But listen, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's verse 5. God justifies ungodly people who believe by putting righteousness in their account. Abounding righteousness. And so no one misunderstands. And before the rabbis can jump all over the place and object and everything, Paul goes right to the other Jewish hero, David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. But also David, the forgiven. I mean, maybe you can dance around Abraham's indiscretions, but you can't ignore David's. And yet again, in faith, David had genuine repentance, and he wrote these two great psalms of repentance. Psalm 51 is the most famous one, but Psalm 32 as well. And Paul quoted Psalm 51 in chapter 3, if you remember. And now he turns to Psalm 32, because David uses that same concept of reckoning that we've been talking about. Accounts. Look at verse 6, Romans chapter 4. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from work. So we're talking about reckoning. Then verse 7, here's the quote. Blessed, David says, these are the first words of the psalm. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not, what? Take into account or reckon. It is a blessed, happy state to have one's sins forgiven. To me, it's a miracle, almost beyond belief. Had not our Lord Jesus made it so clear that that is exactly what God does. He does forgive sinners at enormous cost to himself. So wicked people can be blessed, happy people, as God reckons or puts to their account righteousness. Salvation and blessedness are always based on righteousness. That's a bottom-line theological principle you can't ever move away from. Salvation is based on righteousness. Always. But it can't be based on your righteousness because you don't have enough, and neither do I. But there is no salvation without it. It's not faith that saves. It's righteousness that saves. But faith is that instrument through which God accounts or reckons or puts into our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. It's put to your account. We'll be talking more about that in chapter 5. 
Well, in Psalm 32, David describes the other side of this. His sins were not taken into account. They were forgiven. They were covered. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, sins are always covered. In the New Testament, after the cross, they're taken away. They couldn't be taken away until the cross happened. But even in the Old Testament, anticipating that they're being taken away by Christ, they're covered. They're covered over. So we don't lose sight of Paul's point. Here's the main thing. Far from pronouncing blessed, this is why he's quoting the psalm, David doesn't pronounce blessed those who have earned God's favor through being good, through their good deeds. David's talking about people whose sins are not counted. See? Why? Because verse 6 tells us God has counted righteousness without regard to their works. David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. That's incredible news. Salvation comes by the grace of God. It is received through faith because believing God puts us right with Him because of Christ and what He did. Well, I hope to make it to verse 12, but we're not going to do that today. But let me share with you one last thing. We keep talking about salvation and forgiveness and, and righteousness. What is that all about anyway, salvation? I mean, what, what, what's the hope of it? What are we hoping from that? Let me describe salvation using two brief references to Abraham in the Gospels. One's found in Luke chapter 16. You might want to just turn back there. Luke chapter 16, famous story. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I want to read just part of it and then point out a couple things. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It says, Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. Sounds pretty fun. And a certain poor man named Lazarus, destitute man, was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Quite a contrast. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child... Remember that during your life you received your good things, but likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Abraham is not only in paradise, it's actually named after him. I just think that's interesting. Abraham's bosom. You know, I always thought that was interesting because in, in Shakespeare's Henry V, when Falstaff, this famous Shakespeare character, dies, Mr. Mistress quickly says, he's not an L, he's an Arthur's bosom. If ever a man went to Arthur's bosom, like King Arthur's bosom is the name for paradise in a medieval English mind, I guess. I don't know. But what is it about somebody's chest? Well, the whole idea of Abraham's bosom or Arthur's bosom, it really comes from this Hebraic biblical idea. And you know, it comes from how they used to eat. Now, if you've ever seen like Ben-Hur or something, you can actually see how Jewish people eat. They didn't sit in tables and chairs. Some movies show people sitting in tables and chairs. They didn't have that. They had low tables and they reclined on cushions to eat. They would lean like this and dip it. They're more like this. And you'd have a guy, you'd be there at a table and there'd be a guy next to you there and a guy next to you there. And 
you could literally, to talk to people, you could lean back on somebody's chest and have an intimate conversation with them. And it usually it was considered if there was an important person there, the person that would be to their immediate left that could lean on them was in a very privileged place. And if you remember the Last Supper, it says that John the disciple was leaning on Jesus' breast. I've always thought that was one of the most beautiful concepts and imaginable to lean on the heart of Jesus Christ and hear his heart beating and feel him breathing and be that close to him. But John leaned back on his breast and asked him the question because they were at a meal. And that's the picture here. This wonder That's what salvation is. It's this total, loving, feasting, restful, wonderful place and good fellowship. And Abraham's there. Jesus says it. So he's talking about Lazarus finding comfort and joy and peace and fellowship with Abraham, his ancestor. And verse 25, he even says, now he is being comforted here while you are in agony. So comfort is salvation. The other passage is in Matthew chapter 8, which is a really interesting... This is the story of the Roman centurion who had such great faith. There's only two people in the Bible that Jesus marveled at their faith, and this is one of the two people. Both of them were not Jewish, which really offended those that were around Jesus, that he would make these kind of comments. But if you look at um, verse 8, it says, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's why his faith was so amazing. Jesus said, I'll come to your house and heal your servant. And he says, you don't need to do that. I understand authority. You just say the word and he'll be healed. I mean, that's just incredible faith. He says, verse 9, For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I say to this one, Go, and he goes. To another, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Marveled. And he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People who thought they were on the in might be out. And people who seem like they're out, like this Roman soldier, are going to find themselves dining with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Because of what? Faith. Always in the Bible there are two destinations possible. And notice in verse 11 again you have this image of banqueting. Many will come from the east and the west and recline with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. They'll be there at the table together. Heaven will be full of people from the four corners of the earth and they will dine with Abraham. So salvation is joy in the kingdom of God. It is comfort and rest and joy in the presence of God's saints. And in the presence of the Lord, of course. And that, Jesus says, is the wonderful end of faith. So the centurion wasn't even asking about internal destiny. Isn't that interesting? He was just asking to have his servant. He wasn't talking about, how do I get saved, or any of those kind of questions. But he had faith in Christ. And so Jesus starts talking about his eternal destiny. He believed in Jesus for the need that he had, and Jesus knew where that would take him, to the kingdom of heaven, where other men made righteous by faith dwell. How blessed is the man, David wrote, whose sin is forgiven, where sin, whose sin God will not take into account. But Jesus confirmed 
that Abraham will be in heaven. How did he get there? Well, bend all of your heart and soul energies to understand how, because how he got there is the way you'll get there too. Believe, and God will put to your account righteousness, saving righteousness. That's the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who rescues ungodly men. Because indeed, Lord, looking at our own lives, we're embarrassed, if not a little shocked, at how much we fail. And believing that the law is true, that it's from you, what condemnation comes from us treating it so lightly, breaking it so often? We need external righteousness. And we thank you for the gospel that gives us something to trust in and the hope, a sure hope, of eternal life through your son Jesus. May we embrace him and with him his righteousness. And from that may flow a life of thanksgiving and peace. We thank you in his name. Amen.